Did you notice that word in the message title? You may have seen it in your bulletin. It's there on the screen. Did you notice that word? Jesus-less. Jesus-less. Look again at the message title. There it is. Your survival kit for a Jesus-less world. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, this isn't a Jesusless world. This isn't a Jesusless world. Uh, didn't Jesus say, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age? Matthew 28, verse 20. Didn't he also say earlier in Matthew's gospel that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them? Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Others might come to that same conclusion a different way. This is not a Jesusless world, they would say. Aren't we as believers the body of Christ? Isn't he the head of the body, Ephesians 4.15? Isn't he present in the world through us? Paul said in Ephesians 1.23 that the church is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a pretty stunning statement about the church, isn't it? We call that high ecclesiology. <laughs> That's a really exalted view of the church. That's a big picture of the church right there. Now, if you're thinking that this is not a Jesusless world, how dare you, Pastor? title your sermon that way <laughs> if you're thinking that this morning if you're thinking along any of those lines you'd be correct you would be correct but we also want to be very careful not to miss or minimize the words of jesus himself his own words about this very thing a jesusless world Let's look at those words together. We're looking at John 13, John chapter 13. Before we begin tackling that issue in John 13, let me briefly talk about this part of the book, this section of John's gospel, the broader context in which we find ourselves this morning. As we have been reading in our Bible reading plan last week, We've come to the end of this book of signs, we could call it. The book of signs that John has deliberately constructed in John chapter, chapters 1 through 12. So if you can kind of picture that in your head, kind of a breakdown of the book. Chapters 1 through 12 of the Gospel of John, John is often called the book of signs. Why is it called the book of signs? Well, we know that Jesus did many miracles. Many mighty works, as they're called, like in Matthew eleven twenty, throughout the other Gospels, the mighty works of Jesus. We know that he did many of them. The Gospel of John even acknowledges that. There's little places that you can find references to miracles that Jesus was doing that are not talked about. They're, you don't go into detail. What John has done instead is he highlights in chapters 1 through 12 he highlights seven of these miracles. Seven. He describes them there as signs, indicators, proofs that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He truly was who he claimed to be. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, even God in human flesh. Don't you love when Jesus would talk to the, to, the, to the crowds? He'd say, unless you believe I am He, you will perish in your sins. That could be translated, unless you believe I am. And that's what He says in John chapter 8 when He's talking to the leaders about before Abraham was, I am. And then powerfully to drive that home in narrative form, pictorially represented, right? Illustrated for us. I love this. You're going to see it this week. When the thugs, really they're officers, police, I don't know what they are, they come with Judas to arrest Jesus, right? What does he say? They said, who is Jesus of Nazareth? 
and he says, I am he. What happens? They all fall over. All the guys fall over. What a confirmation of the power of Jesus' identity that we see very clearly. He just simply says, I am he, which brings that together. So these seven miracles, these seven signs or proofs were proving, they were showing that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be. This takes us all the way to the very end. It, it should drive us to the end of the gospel because many of you already know that at the end of the gospel, near the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, take a look here on the screen what you see. This is John's explicit purpose statement and think of it in light of what I just told you about chapters 1 through 12. Now, Jesus did many other signs. We've acknowledged that. The gospel, the book acknowledges that. He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, in addition to these seven, which are not written in this book. But these, these seven, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Boy, I love that, don't you? How powerful that purpose statement. You don't, you don't get in many, in many of the books of the, of the Bible, you don't get as clear a statement as this about why the writer is writing. Some are like this, but this is so wonderful that God has provided this through John for us. And it ties together what we've already looked at. So this past Monday, thinking about our context here, this past Monday you read about the seventh sign, the very last sign of the seven signs. Do you remember what that was? It was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. John eleven forty five tells us that this stunning miracle did in fact inspire many to believe in Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. But we also read in chapters 11 and 12 that this miracle also solidified opposition to Jesus. Those who were curious, many of them pushed them towards Christ. Those who were distrustful, it pushed them further away from Christ. It hardened them. As the Puritans used to say, the same sun that softens the ice hardens the clay. Right? That's what we see happening here in John's gospel. John chapter 12 verse 10 tells us, shockingly, that the religious leaders sought not only to kill Jesus, to put him to death, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to put him to death because he was what? He was living, breathing proof of Jesus' incomparable power, wasn't he? We also find in chapter 12 language indicating a conclusion, a wrap-up, a pivot John, take a look. John chapter 12, verse 23. You'll see it on the screen here. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Do you remember way back in chapter 2 when they were at the wedding in Cana? And the mother of Jesus said what? Please help them, right? Please help them. They've run out of wine. He said, woman, my hour has not yet come. And he says it once or twice again. He talks about his hour not coming. What do we have here in chapter 12? The hour has come. The hour is here. So we know we're entering a new phase of the book at this point. But we also read, sadly, faithlessness was continued. Faithlessness, doubt continued to be prevalent and persistent. You see that there in John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs, comments John, before them, before the people, they still did not believe in him. And just to drive that home, if you were to go back on your own time and just look at verses 44 through 50 of chapter 12, it is a beautifully fitting and stirring conclusion to that book of signs. It's Jesus reaching out one more time in one sense, speaking directly to those listening and talking about why he came into the world, a call to faith. So what do we find then if we've moved in that 
conclusion and that pivot, chapters 1 through 12, what do we find when we arrive at chapter 13? We discover the beginning of a new section. That's where you began to read this last week. And this next section, which includes chapters 13 through 17, unlike what came before it, only covers a few hours. It only covers a period of a few hours, chapters 13 through 17, on a Thursday night, a few hours on a Thursday night. And it, and it mainly contains Jesus talking, just teaching. You got a taste of that as you were reading, and many of you are already familiar with these passages. But notice how it begins. You're there in John chapter 13. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to what? Depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There it is, isn't it? There it is. Jesus doesn't mince words. The hour was coming when our world would become Jesusless. Jesusless. How? How would this take place? Jesus would be betrayed. Jesus would be arrested. Jesus would be abandoned. Jesus would be unjustly condemned. Jesus would be crucified. Jesus would be buried. Jesus would rise from the dead. Jesus would return to his Father. That's how it will play out. You know, most of you know that. That's how it will play out. He was leaving this world. And he stresses that fact over and over again in chapters 13 through 17. Take a look at all of these verses, and this is just some of them. John 13, 33, little children, yet a little while am I with you. Right? A short time I'm with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. John 14, 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. John 14, 28, I am going away. I am going to the Father. John 16, 5, I am going to Him who sent me. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now can you imagine the dismay and despair this caused among His disciples? These guys had given everything for Jesus. Most of them for three and a half years had been with him, hadn't they? Can you imagine hearing what they're hearing? Those who had been with him for so long, those who still didn't understand God's plan, who most likely were believing that somehow Jesus would still be widely embraced and accepted as the Messiah over Israel, still believed maybe that he would soon rule in Jerusalem? You can hear that dismay. You can hear that despair in their questions and their comments throughout this section, chapters 13 through 17. You can hear it. They were grappling with the reality of a Jesus-less world. It scared them. It grieved them. Brothers and sisters, friends, that's the reality in which we live today. We live in that reality of a Jesus-less world. Our master, our teacher, our king no longer walks among us in the flesh to enlighten, to lead, to heal, to comfort, to correct. Do you feel his absence? Do you feel that absence? I know that you have at times, deeply. And you will, you will feel that reality of a Jesus-less world. On top of this, as Jesus makes clear in these chapters, his absence coincides with a period now of deep hostility against his word, his work, and his people. 
opposition, hatred. So for any here, for any listening, who sincerely love Him, the absence of Jesus will invariably tempt us at times to dismay and despair. Having not seen Him, 1 Peter 1.8, you love Him. Having not seen Him, you love Him. Does that summarize your life as a Christian? It should. That's what a Christian is. Having not seen Him, you love Him. It's not a person who prayed a prayer. It's not a person who walked an aisle. It's not a person who filled out a card. It's not a person who was raised in a Christian home. It's not a person who went to a Bible school. It's not a person who's completed a course of study in their church with a certification at the end. It's a person who hasn't seen Jesus, but loves Him. Loves Him. We live today in a Jesus-less world, but if you read chapters 13 through 15, as we did last week, then you know that Jesus has graciously, He graciously anticipated those struggles in light of His absence. He is lovingly preparing his followers for this Jesusless world, isn't he? We see it over and over again. Wonderfully, what we find in these chapters is a kind of survival kit for a Jesusless world. It's his provision, it's God's provision for us as followers of the ascended Christ, the master who's gone away to do business in a far off country. Servants of the King who is coming. It's His provision until He returns. The question that we need to ask is this as we think about what's coming up in these chapters. Take a look here. This is the question that we need to ask. Am I utilizing or experiencing what Jesus has provided for me to spiritually survive and even thrive until he comes again. Are you utilizing and experiencing what Jesus has provided for you to spiritually survive and even thrive until he comes again? If you're a follower of Christ, your heart should be this morning, I want to utilize, I want to experience all that Christ has made possible for me while he's gone. In this Jesusless world, I want to take advantage of everything he's pointed me to here. So let's start to unpack this survival kit, as we're calling it, by looking together at chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. Jesus declares there, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. There's our theme again. Jesus is leaving. Here's what I'm saying to you while I'm here. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Amen. Amen. The most important part of this survival kit is the one that we're going to talk about first. Verse 26, the Father will send, take a look, number one, the Spirit of God. The Father will send the Spirit of God. The first time that Jesus actually mentions the Holy Spirit in this section, in these chapters, is earlier. If you scan up to verses 16 and 17, take a look. 16 and 17, and I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper right another helper the paraclete in greek it's the one who walks along and comes alongside of someone else to help he is going to be with you forever says jesus even i'm talking about the spirit of truth so a natural question that you should ask and i should ask we want to ask for this in this section in light of these verses is how is the Spirit our helper? How does the Spirit help us in light of Jesus' absence? Well, 
amazingly, the first thing to look at is verse 17, 14, 17. He revealed, Jesus reveals this about the Spirit. He dwells with you and will be, future tense, in you. Now try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. Especially if you were a Jew. You read about times in the Old Testament when the Spirit would come on, the Spirit would come on a person to empower them to accomplish God's will in some often spectacular way, come upon them to prophesy, to give a word from the Lord. But this idea of the Spirit being in you, it was foretold by the prophets, but that radical reality was coming to pass. Jesus says that's what's hap- it's going to happen. The Spirit is going to be in you. So look at what our main text back to 25 through 27, look what our main text tells us about the work of the indwelling Spirit of God. I said earlier, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be one who does not see Jesus but loves Jesus. And if you're that person, then guess what? The Spirit of the living God is in you. Well, I don't feel that Spirit, Pastor. Whether you feel it or not, the Word of God says the Spirit of God is in you if you are genuinely born again. If you genuinely belong, genuinely belong to the flock of Christ. If you've heard the voice of the shepherd call to you and you followed as we talked about last week. So take a look here at verse 26. It says this about the work of the Spirit. How does he help us? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Now this is echoed in 16 verse 13, chapter 16 verse 13. He will guide you into all truth, says Jesus. Look at 1526, Jesus declares that the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Similarly, in chapter 16, verse 14, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. There are many things the New Testament will go on to teach us about the Spirit of God. There are many important ways in which we long for the Spirit. There are many movements, generally in the last hundred years, 100 plus years, there are many movements that have emphasized the role of the Spirit of God. And they've talked about the empowering of the Spirit in a particular way. That has been pushed out. That has woven its way into many other congregations, many other denominations, into our thinking in general. But what often happens is we lose sight of the fact that when Jesus talks about the Spirit in light of His absence, He is reminding us here at the get-go, right from the start, He is reminding us that the Spirit's primary role, the reason that the Holy Spirit has come into the world is to keep us focused on Jesus. He's gone, but the Spirit brings us back to Him. We don't hear Him any longer with those vocal cords that He used to speak to crowds, sometimes of thousands of people, but the Spirit brings His words to our hearts. The Spirit empowers us in light of the example of Christ. Right? The Spirit of God glorifies Jesus. Well, we should put more emphasis on the Holy Spirit. No! We shouldn't put more emphasis on the Holy Spirit because the role of the Spirit is to put the emphasis on Jesus. That's His role. That's what He does. How does the Helper help us? He helps us in light of this word that Christ used in John 15. He helps believers abide in Christ. Christ. He helps believers abide or remain in Christ. What does that mean? He helps us to remain focused on Jesus, to remember his words, even walk in those words. And we also read this in John chapter 16, verse 8. 
Take a look. John 16, verse 8. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How will the Spirit help us? He will help us declare Christ. He will help us on this mission into the world to lift up the Son of God, to lift up the name of Christ, to declare the good news, because He will do what? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What an encouragement for us who are continuing Christ's work in this world. Think about what we just saw. Think about this idea. If these men were concerned that without Jesus present with them, Him leaving, if these men were concerned that they would be lost and ineffective, they would be hopelessly lost and hopelessly ineffective, if that was their concern, Jesus says, guys, I got this. I'm sending the Spirit to you. The promise of the Holy Spirit should have been an incredible consolation to them. They might not have understood it, right? They might not have gotten it at, the, at that point, but later they would remember these words and they would understand and experience the Spirit of God. Is the presence of the Holy Spirit a consolation for you as well? No, you're not one of these guys that night. No, you didn't spend three and a half years following this dude around his ancient Roman Israel, right? You, you weren't doing that. I wasn't doing that. We can't necessarily understand how they felt that night when he said these things to him, how scared or heartbroken they were, how confused they were. But we live in a Jesusless world as well. Our master, our teacher, our king is not here with us in person. We feel confused at times, don't we? We feel grieved at times. We feel scared at times. Open up that survival kit, believer. Open it up and see that God has provided his spirit for you to console you, to say, you know what? I'm going to keep, help you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. What should I do, Lord? I'm lost. You're not lost. Remember the words of your Savior, bringing them to our hearts. I can't reach this person, Lord. Their heart is hard. They're not interested in spiritual things. The Spirit's coming to convict the world in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's God's work. Pray along those lines for the Spirit of God to work in and through you in the life of that person who needs to hear the good news. You see, what a consolation. What provision we have. And of course, like I said, we could go into the rest of the New Testament and just like double-click on all these things and oh, we just open up new windows into the work of the Spirit in our lives. Let's, con let's continue to do that by looking back at our text here because we also see in this main passage, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, we also read about another element in this survival kit, and that is number two, the peace of God. In addition to the Spirit of God, the peace of God is given to us. Look again at 1427. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Did you see? Did you see how Jesus qualified the word peace? Right? Right away he wants to qualify the word peace. Christ's provision of peace is not the same as that peace the world often pursues. I want a peaceful life. I wish there was peace. That peace is simply the absence of conflict, isn't it? That peace maybe is the enjoyment of peaceful circumstances in our life. I just need a moment of peace and quiet, right? And that means circumstances. That means all y'all shut your mouths and like, go somewhere else, right? Calgon, take me away. 
showing my age here by that ref commercial reference, but you get the idea, right? You get the idea. That's peace that the world often pursues. Jesus qualifies. He says, I'm not giving you that peace. The peace that Jesus will leave when he returns to the Father will be an inward peace. Did you see that in the, in the context there in the verse? Look at the next phrase in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. When Jesus talks about peace, he's got the heart in mind, doesn't he? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Is the world's peace a bad thing? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The world's peace is not a bad thing, but the peace of Jesus is far, far better. It is way better to have the peace of Jesus. Why is that? Because we simply cannot and will not experience outward or circumstantial peace all the time in this world, in this age. We just won't. And if you're here this morning and you are working your tail off to achieve circumstantial peace and relational peace and whatever kind of outward peace, you're working your tail off to, to, to realize that. And sometimes you achieve that by running away from your problems. That's how I'll get peace. I'll get away from those people who, who are stealing my peace, who are creating conflict, who are creating chaos. And in some cases, that's probably the wisest thing to do. But too often, we try to manipulate. We either run away or we try to manipulate. We pressure or we rationalize. We figure out some way because we're focused on that outward peace rather than the peace that Jesus provides. Jesus goes on to tell us about the world. He goes on to tell us about the circumstance, this, when we think about circumstances and peace with others and outward peace. Look what he goes on to say in John chapter 15, verse 19. Just scroll down, turn the page. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, says Jesus, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. Do you think you're going to experience peace in that place, in this world? In a Jesusless world, a world that hates the true Jesus, there are other versions of Jesus that are more politically correct, that are more culturally correct, that are more whatever, comfortable and easy to get along with. But the true world hates the true Jesus, John 15, 18. In this Jesusless world, we've been given the incredible gift by our Father, by our King of heavenly peace. Heavenly peace in spite of the earthly suffering that you will inevitably face. He says, I know that you're going to suffer. Don't try to deny it. Don't try to run away from it. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. But I am giving you a peace, a peace that will endure, a peace in the midst of that conflict, trial, tribulation, difficulty. I am giving you my peace. Where does this peace come from? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would later teach us that this peace is, in fact, a supernatural manifestation or a fruit of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. This peace will come supernaturally through the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the helper that we just talked about a moment ago. But just listen to a few in the context here, listen to a few of the things that Jesus tells his followers, a few peace-inspiring, peace-producing truths that Jesus gives to these men. In fact, I would encourage you to receive these this morning in faith. Are you ready? Open your hearts this morning. God says, I want to speak peace to the storm in your life. 
I want to speak peace into your soul this morning. Will you allow him to do that this morning? Invite him in in that way. Listen to what he says. Let this inspire peace in you. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Peace. Peace. You belong. You belong. There's a room for you in the Father's house. For you. Many rooms. That means all of us get a room. <laughs> right? It's just a metaphor, but it's powerful. It's just a powerful image of belonging and acceptance and value. Let it inspire peace in you. How about John 14, 23? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him or her and make our home with him or her. So yeah, there's belonging when Jesus returns to bring us into the Father's presence. But right now, the Father and the Son come to dwell in your heart. Come to dwell, come to be in your life in a profound way. Belonging. The presence of God. You are not alone. You are not alone. Peace inspiring, right? Peace inspiring. One more for you from this section. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, says Jesus, that you may have in me, that in me you may have peace. Where's the peace coming from? It's in him. It's in Christ. In me you may have peace. In the world, you can be sure of this. <laughs> you will have tribulation. But take heart. Let peace be produced in you. Why? I have overcome the world, says Jesus. Doesn't matter what the world can throw at you. Doesn't matter how heavy it feels, the world weighing you down and crushing you right now. Doesn't matter if the world looks like, it looks like there's no other way, but the world will win. The world will defeat you. The world will beat back the light. The darkness pushing back the light. Let peace rise up in you in light of the fact that Jesus has already overcome the world. The victory belongs to Christ. Amen? The victory belongs to Christ. We're going to talk more about that next time. But hold on to that and let it nurture peace in you that Christ has overcome the world. Now, one more, one more item that we're going to share from this survival kit. Now, look, chapters 13 through 17, there are many other things in this survival kit. There are many other things that Jesus gives them. A lot of them can be kind of ranked or kind of classified or filed under these larger points. But I'd encourage you to go through, you know, just read back through 13 through 17 in one sitting and just ask, what has Jesus provided? What has God provided for me in this time where my master is gone, where the king is still tarrying, I'm waiting for him to return. We're looking at the big three, I think, three key ones here. So let me finish with this one that takes us back to chapter 13. This last one is also clear, it's a clear, it's a key essential to living in a Jesusless world. And I'm talking about number three, the love of God. The love of God. Not quite like you're thinking probably when you read that, but let's take a look at what Jesus says. 
Chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, Jesus tells his followers, keep in mind all the stuff we've been talking about. Keep it in mind. Look what he says. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. What the? This guy's like a broken record. Everywhere you turn in these chapters, he's talking about leaving. He's talking about it's just going to be a little bit of time. A little while, short time. I'm leaving, I'm going. Here it is again, right at the beginning. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34. Some might feel like this is going from not second gear to third gear or third gear to fourth gear, but like third gear to reverse. Because it seems so weird here. All of a sudden, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Oh, don't you love this? Isn't it amazing how the context, when we understand something with a larger view in mind, really helps us make sense of some of these specifics. Look again, the relationship here between the absence of Jesus and the presence of brotherly love is unmistakable. Unmistakable. When Jesus returned to the Father, these disciples, as Jesus points out here, would need to come together in love in a way they simply hadn't in fact, couldn't before. Soon, Jesus would not be present to love them in person, so they would need to be present in love for one another. That's why he says what he says. In fact, he says, love one another just as I have loved you. You see, he's talking about him being gone. He's not there, right? You need to love one another. You know, I've seen it a little bit, but sometimes you guys are like all up in each other's faces, all up in each other's business, right? You're like, I'm better than you. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Yeah, you're doing that. No, I need you to come together, and I need you to love one another. And uh, not love like you're hearing on, you know, KJRS Jerusalem radio love like love songs on the radio talking about love like I've demonstrated to you the way that I've cared for you the way I've been there for you you have to be that for one another I'm not going to be here I'm not going to be here you need to be that for one another to stand together in that way he even provided a picture for them just so they would not miss this point, right? He's not letting them get away with like, uh, like, Lord, I'm before the judgment seat and I have like no idea when you said like love, like what are you even talking about? Like love, like, no, he made it crystal clear what this love was. Look at verses three through 17. Just skim over of chapter 13. He provides a picture, an example of humble serving love so humble that jesus assumes the position of the lowest slave in a household the one responsible to wash the feet of anyone who came through the door and let me tell you this you did not want to be wearing i wear i wear flip-flops quite a bit high five to my man bob junker back there yeah that's usually what i'm wearing throughout the week this same outfit I wouldn't want to be wearing those walking around first century Israel. You just would not want to be. You've got animal dung. You've got human waste, right? You've got, there's no indoor plumbing. There's dirt and grime and bugs and all sorts of things that are on your feet. So, of course, the lowest slave, the one at the bottom of the ladder, the totem pole, of course, that slave had to wash the feet of those who came in the door because it was a ugh, gross duty. 
So take a look at what he does here. He actually gets down and washes their feet. And then verse 14, look at verse 14 of chapter 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Love one another just as I have loved you. Brothers and sisters, this community of disciples right here, this faith family, this church was given to you by Jesus in order to help you survive and even thrive in a Jesusless world. You believe that? He gave this body to you to love you in person because Jesus could not. He's chosen not to be here presently. He actually said, it's better if I go away, right? It's better because when I go, I'm going to send the helper to you. And he's going to work in a way, powerful way, as the next stage of God's redemptive purposes. And it will be amazing because not only will he be with you, he'll be in you. He'll be in you. Jesus has given you his body, this church. And when a church is healthy, it should be a place of humility and love and service, just like we see exemplified in this washing bowl and the towel down on the knees. That's the picture of what a healthy church looks like. A place where we regularly bless one another as we, by the power of the helper, the Spirit, as we regularly look to the example of Jesus. Oh, we just came full circle. Did you see it? We just came full circle. So Jesus has exemplified what kind of love he's talking about that we have for one another. Humble, serving, sacrificial love. And we remember the picture of what Jesus taught us about. We remember his words and what he taught us about. We remember them because the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind his words to us. You see, we've come full circle back to the helper, to the Spirit of God. This section is called the love of God. You think, well, it's love of the disciples, really. Well, it's the love of God in the sense that we, we mirror Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, with the love of Jesus, God in human flesh. And even in chapter 17, watch this week what he says. Jesus is going to pray. This is stunning, absolutely stunning. He says, Father, let the love with which you loved me before the foundation of the world be in them. Wow. In you, in us, the love of God in us, the love the Father shared with the Son all the way into eternity past without end. In me. In you. In some way, in many ways, most often we will, all, we will do this imperfectly, loving one another, right? We'll do this imperfectly. But to know how important this is, all you need to do is just turn over to John's first letter. It's called 1 John in our Bibles. And just read what he writes about the new commandment. Just read how much he emphasizes it, how important it is to him. That's this. Provision in a Jesusless world for the people of God. So let's go back to the earlier question about application. You may recognize and affirm these items, right? You're listening to the Spirit of God. Yes, Pastor. Peace of God, yes, 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 amen. Love of God, sure, yep, yep, I read that too, I saw that. You may be doing that, but take a look. Are you utilizing or experiencing what Jesus has provided for you to spiritually survive and even thrive until he comes again? Some of us are not doing that, and we struggle, right? We're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're quenching the Spirit. Even this morning, maybe. We're not pursuing the peace of God. We're not taking time to stop and to let that peace work itself through us as we focus on the promises, the assurance of Christ. 
We're too busy trying to turn all the dials, get things right in our life. We're not allowing the body of Christ to love us. We built a moat. We built a wall. We're staying away, right? Even if we're here in person, we're emotionally absent. We're emotionally guarded. We're not allowing that love to help us thrive like Christ intended it to do. God knows our struggles. He knows how we struggle with these provisions. And so the encouragement is, are you utilizing or experiencing what Jesus has provided for you? Some of us are struggling precisely because we've neglected these things. We can just say, well, I'm struggling spiritually. And yeah, pastor, I get it. I'm thinking now about these three things in my life. I'm not where I need to be. I, have, I don't understand, or if I understand, I'm being stubborn, or I'm hurt and I don't know how to make my way forward. I feel lost. Now, some of you are going the right direction this morning, but God is calling you to press in even more this morning. Don't stop. Keep going, right? Make it your holy ambition to keep pressing on deeper. There's never an I have arrived moment on any of these things. Like, well, you know what? I'm going to pray. I was going to pray for the peace of God, but really I've just got, I'm all good on that. I'm topped off on the peace of God in my life. So I won't pray for that. And love of the body, love of, love of my brothers and sisters, I think I'm good there. I feel like I've done my duty in loving them. I feel like I've let enough love into my life. No, 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 no. We keep going. We keep pressing forward into these things to experience even more of God's provision. So, when you feel the ache, when you feel the rub, when you feel the hunger, when you feel the pains of life in a Jesusless world, a world in which you cannot, you cannot see him face to face, then open this survival kit. And in faith, give thanks for these things and lay hold of the Spirit of God. Lay hold of the peace of God and the love of God that's available through His people. Pray for wisdom to utilize and experience these things. Ask a brother or sister about utilizing and experiencing these things. Dig into Scripture and meditate on verses that speak about utilizing and experiencing these things. And do all of this in faith, remembering by the help of the Holy Spirit, remembering the one who spoke these words to you, remembering the one who spoke these words, his sacrificial love for us went beyond the washing basin, didn't it? It went beyond the washing basin. It went even further. It took him all the way to the cross for you. Until we stand in His presence and see Him face to face, let's take full advantage of the provision that He has described in these chapters. Amen? Not only to survive, but also to thrive. Let's pray together. Let's ask God for help in this very way.